Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About The Weather, political discussion from the outside made us sound like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and this is Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk news and politics. We are. And I'm hey. Fiddling with the levels. You're fiddling with the levels. Yeah. Always level fiddling. I'm still sick. Like, still sick. Like, it got worse. It got better and then it got worse and then we, that's why we didn't do anything last week. But like, okay. Kids been at uni for three weeks. Mm-hmm. We were ill... And she's ill when we dropped her off. Right. And still ill now. Huh. With just this lingering bullshit cold. I have busted my nussy so many times to make sure that I haven't got Rona. Are you and sure an exorcism wouldn't help? Bust I'm, your holy nussy. If I, I am a friend of demons. I have read the Ars <laughs> Goetia. Goetia? Goetia? I don't know. The one with Stolas in it. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Stolas is my boy. He'd make sure I, he would never leave me wrong. <laughs> if you can't trust an owl that is in charge of rocks and predicting the future. With giant legs. Yes, and a crown. If you can't trust a noble owl, who can you trust? <laughs> but yeah, it's just fucking annoying. I'm so tired of being fucking ill. It sucks. It's that weird. That there, there is a load of stuff where, because I was ill last week as well. But it was like a cold that was so light that I could Because we won't stop kissing. It, I mean, it's true. And we won't. Stop kissing. Hmm. That's why I started this podcast. <laughs> um, but it was a kind of thing that it, you could... T- I, d- I don't think I've had coronavirus. Hmm. But now every cold will be coronavirus. And it was just one of those weird ones that took took like residence in your head and made you woozy and like nearly fell down a couple of times. <laughs> Still at work, though. Because <laughs> we're, we're back to masochism. Yeah. Um... But yeah, other than that, you know, well, there was the budget today. We will not be talking about that today. We'll yeah. be doing it next week. We'll do it next week. Because, you know, oh God. Like, okay, I was debating whether I'd pay that much attention to it and you then at least have like a couple of hot takes on the immediate things of the budget. But instead, I played Inscription all day. Nice. And I could tell you about card games. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that, no, no, not going to talk about that. But yeah, what we're going to talk about, talk about what we're going to talk about last week. Which is David Ames. Is it David Ames or David Ames? David Ames. Yeah, he died. Yeah, he was, he was murdered. Uh, he was stabbed to death at constituency surgery. Um, la- not Friday before last. Mm-hmm. Um, and like it, as soon as that, that came out, I was like, I always remember David Ames because he is the MP who was in the cake episode of the drugs episode of Brass Eye. Yep. And in fact, made a statement in the House of Commons about you know what the government of the time, which yeah. was the John Major government, I think. Was it? It must have been because it was nineteen ninety-seven, and it was probably filmed before that. So I assume it was the I'm too young John Major to government. You're too young to remember. I was born in two thousand. <laughs> I can't believe you look so young. You look so youthful. Um, and yeah, he was the only. It was the only thing I ever remember him for. And I think there was like a couple of mentions of it, but obviously nothing in the. Uh, He's saying that his obituaries weren't entirely based around him being a rube on brass time. Well, Brass-Dye. I mean, it was the thing that I yeah the can't remember anything else about him. Other than the fact that he was in the job since 1983. And look... He was a hardcore Catholic. He was a hardcore Catholic. Uh, He was... Against abortion, but in favour of the death penalty in that classic Catholic way. Yeah. Um, And look, like, there was a lot of stuff at the time. And, you know, like, not going to act all surprised. Like, there was some... Jeremy Corbyn, like, put out a message saying, like... 
put out a tweet saying, sorry, the terrible news, sorry to hear, he was a good public servant, all of that kind of stuff. And it's like, yeah, okay, everyone puts out that. Yeah. That's fine. And, you know, what we, you know, did you actually, you were kind of hoping that he would say, yeah, he fucking deserved it, didn't he? <laughs> <laughs> what do you, you know. expect anyone to say I'm, gl- that. I'm glad he's dead. Let that be yeah. a warning to the rest well, of you. Well, that's the thing. That's, that they, they do expect him to say that. Well, it's a... And then they try and, try and divine, like, they look at, Whatever he says when someone dies, like it'll happen when the Queen dies, if she's not already dead. Oh, yeah. But no, she is very alive, just overflowing with life. Um, they, like, he'll do a tweet, and then they'll put as much attention into that tweet as, like, trying to define divine meaning from the, um, oh, God, from the Zodiac Killer's messages. Yeah. To try and, like, well, obviously, look, if you take the first letter and you turn it, it says... Hamas rules forever, <laughs> um, and then have a go at him about it. They called her like called her like Elizabeth, but like pronounced in a Hungarian accent. Yeah, which is a, a calculated insult to the Jewish community. It is. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, to be fair, I could see this is like, oh, look at him expressing sorrow for the death of Queen Elizabeth, who one of the most anti-Semite, one of the most virulently anti-Semitic <laughs> p- people in public life. <laughs> I do feel like there's a weird kind of social tick because Colin Powell um, died this uh, this week or last week. It's Colin, isn't no. it? No. Why are they calling it? What? Uh, it are look, you refusing to? Name no, Colin. I, I did that on purpose, and, yeah, every, no. and I've heard other people do it, and it's like, yeah, whatever. Colin Powell. Yeah. But Colin Powell died the same way. Yeah, and call, why is it Colin? Is it like a weird American pronunciation thing? I don't know. I just, or is it just I, like I presume that, as I presume suit. as with everything, names and languages correct through usage. So I just like the way like he gets to a certain age where you know when you start to realise that what your name is like. I had a long time of being annoyed at my name being oh, like. Your name's oh, good though. Yeah, having it's have, spelled a good way as yeah, well. But having can't... having such a Welsh name in a very English place where I grew up. Yeah. And either it like if you hear it, it's either you're posh, or then you look at it, and it's yeah. spelt wrong, and then you get bullied for that. So you get a, So I've just got this image of him going like, "No, I don't want to be a Colin." Yeah. Colin. Or Colin. Yeah. But there's like a weird kind of comparison there because I mean, obviously, look, Colin Powell has the obvious record of being one of the biggest beat like cowards, <laughs> and it's all he will be remembered for was being a coward. It doesn't matter what else he did, and he did a lot of other stuff. There were like people sort of the news like people need to always seem to forget he was a dove. He didn't want war, and it's like yeah, he went for it though. <laughs> he went for it pretty fucking hard for somebody who didn't want one. He's like oh, he wasn't part of the neoliberal. It's like what did he do anyway? This yeah. isn't to discuss Colin Powell, yeah. but just by comparison, yeah. There is this element of like having a proper public accounting that is driven by a certain like angry radicalism, and mm. obviously it's I think it's probably harder to get angry at like David Amos mm-hmm. because you know he was I don't know he had he had a hand in he's been an MP since 1983 yeah. he has had one of 600 hands <laughs> in every bad thing you don't like and yeah. some hands in things that you do like yeah. environmental stuff and all that so. But it's like, ut- it's like basically like utterly back- unexceptional Tory. Yeah, he's like a, like a lot you of know? those kind of backbencher Tories. It's like he's a homophobe, but he likes animals. And it's like, how, like, was this the case in the past? Well, the people I know, like, this. publicly, you always have the "don't speak ill of the dead," and I know that, like, my wife now 
thinks of that as a very weird English cultural tick, hmm. that actually it's a disrespectful to not have a proper accounting of the dead person's... <laughs> it's like, disrespectful yeah, not no, to put is. them on trial like, um, like that Pope. But not to speak truthfully of them. <laughs> okay, yeah. Do you know what I mean? No, and, I and I know there are various English ticks... No, I'd be very much in favour of whenever a public <laughs> figure dies, we put them on trial and are able to say the things cause, that you can't normally say because you can't libel the dead. But there was very much like this sense of trying to push it beyond... I think it'd be a good healing process if, you know, like, when the Queen dies, not that she'll ever die, um, she's, she's, like, put on display, and everyone goes up with a megaphone and gets a chance to, like, libel her for a bit. The Queen is going to die, everyone dies, but it's going to be the maximum and most annoying amount of time, like, five years of absolutely nothing about her, and then when she's, like, a hundred. No, she's already dead. Oh, yeah, this is this. Yeah, no, yeah, you're right. No, oh, okay, I'll play along, everyone. It, yeah, she's already dead unless she's actually alive. Unless she's actually dead, in which case she's still alive somewhere in Panama. Yeah. Right. Well, no, she went... we, this is what we've decided is going to be today's play, like this week's play object. She decided that she couldn't handle being in this country anymore because it sucked. Uh-huh. So she went to stay with some members of her family who happened to move to South America around 1945. <laughs> but, like, yeah, it, it's... It, you know, this is this was a person who was in a position of authority who was like close at hand and you know is it perhaps even among people that like i've chatted to anecdotally Hmm. it's been like there's been this reluctant reluctance to like i'm not saying everyone has to be like or something Hmm. like that but like even if you're opposed to the tory project even if you're like a proper like remain person Hmm. there's this slotting into a kind of comfortable like everydayness about him and, and about his legacy yeah. that definitely kind of tried to push it away from the political and acted like this wasn't a person who had a hand in mortality and, and who didn't have those decisions like yeah. life and death decisions at his at his as his responsibility. Yeah, he was like a benevolent I mean? country lord that well I say country lord, a benevolent South End figure who all he cared about was making South End a city liking animals and generally doing nice things around the community he definitely didn't work in government yeah he didn't he wasn't a politician he wasn't a politician that's the thing yeah. that, that was the thing that i got from it it's like oh this isn't about politics and it's like mp was stabbed in public uh, yeah. by we do not know all the full details of the yeah. uh the murderers like the killers like but it wasn't for personal motives reasons. or details yet but uh, i'm going to go with a pretty good hunch and i might be wrong hmm. but it appears like it wasn't a personal vendetta there could be it's not yeah. it's never as clean cut as like Lee Rigby it's never as clean yeah. cut as kind of it is one thing or the other but yeah it was uh, and there's it's just the fact that also thinking about how we were going to deal with this last week when originally we were going to record and I was like yeah there's no proper way of saying this because there is also a fucking minefield of laws mm-hmm. and aside from custom there's a load of laws around this that could get you in some serious fucking trouble hmm. If you say certain, if you frame this in certain ways rather than the others, so the expectation that you know a left-wing MP or a left-wing mm. commentator or something is going, yeah, fuck yeah, mm. is is really odd. And of course, yeah, you're then obviously forced to th- inevitably think about what would have, what what the outcome would have been if, say, Jeremy Corbyn had been assassinated. You know, mm-hmm. like he nearly was a number of times, mm-hmm. and. Remember you know, those soldiers? Live by the, yeah, remember the soldiers who shot a, a target of him. And I just keep having these phrases echoing around my head, like live by the sword, die by the sword, or, you know, 
play with fire, you get burned. He was no angel. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Well, just um, today, there was um, Insulate Britain... Some Insulate Britain pensioners yeah. got sprayed with ink by a guy mm. who... It's not the same, but he was. It was premeditated. He had like a special little thing for squirting ink on them. Then, then proceeded to squirt ink on all of them and then walk away. And on BBC News, they're like, even though um, that the, you know, enslaved Britain people were sprayed with ink at this thing, even though they were banned from being there by the courts. It's like, why do you have to blame them for being sprayed with ink by some rando annoying dickhead? <laughs> do you know what I mean? Like they, they would they like. The way that they talked about... Um, he was no that, angel. They put it? themselves in harm's way. Was it the um, yeah. the thick Range Rover mum who was trying to run him over? Oh, and then the yeah, son yeah. did a series of photos with her showing off her ass. Yeah. Did you not see that? I did, I, did see the, uh, I did see the Range Rover pushing in. And it's like, yeah, yeah, finally. It's like, what? What yeah. is so absolutely desperate? If your kid... If, like, if there, was a ro- if there were roadworks, if there was a car crash... Hmm. Your kid would be late for school. Mm-hmm. So, what is the, the the root of that and the egging on of it, mm-hmm. and the the kind of the the pointing? It is the pointing out of acceptable targets because mm. at yeah. some point, somebody like and as much as you definitely don't want this to happen, mm-hmm. somebody from Insulate Britain is going to get killed mm-hmm. when they're run over, <laughs> and it's probably going to be filmed, mm-hmm. and it's going to be fucking awful, mm-hmm. and. There's all of this, all of this shit, like about the kind of. Oh, he wasn't a politician. He wasn't a politician. But me, who is a politician, I am like this. We are fighting for democracy mm. every single day, and like people like Brendan Cox coming out and going like, "Today's a good day to thank an MP for their service." And mm-hmm. it's like, right, okay, I'm not happy at people being murdered. I'm not happy at people being stabbed. This has nothing to do with that. No. Thank an MP for their service. Mm-hmm. No, I absolutely no. do not have to think it because they're not a public service. No. They're public representatives. And I get that it's actually quite confusing as to there seems to be two, it seems to change depending on what happens. But either it's a job that requires full benefits and full like labour rights, mm-hmm. or it's a sacred position by which you communicate the will of the masses through to the divine yeah. parliament. And you know, it's the it's the Stella Creasy thing with, mm. um, oh, I don't get proper maternal leave. Mm. And it's like, yeah, you don't, and there probably has to be something around that, but it's like, this isn't a normal job. No. This is this is something different from the, notion, the, like, the, notion the economy. That, the notion that it's a job for life is maddening. That, you know, yeah. that, that once, you're, once you're chosen, no matter how, you know, weird it is that the way that you're chosen, yeah. that's it, you're safe forever. And you should be able to be treated like, yeah, like any other job. That's the other like, thing. Like, I, I was thinking about, like, he's been in that, like, Amos had been in that mm. job since 1983. No, like, l- by and large, I can't imagine any position where you're paid a salary to perform mm. a role, let's mm. say. I can't imagine any position that you could hold since 1983 until 2021 and not, ha- it, it, not to have some trick to it. I'm sorry, and supposedly, and, and, and also... Presenter of Songs of Praise. Right. I imagine. No, but they are, they are subject... <laughs> David Attenborough. They are, subject to the, they are still subject to the whims of the market, as it were. David Attenborough isn't. And I know it's not, like, MPs aren't, but mm. it's... Queen. The Queen. Yes. The Queen. Yeah, that, 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 that's yeah. a normal job. No, okay, yeah, no. I, I, that, but yeah, that is no, the but, only... but there is a very big, important link there <laughs> that has kept her in power. Yes. No, it's... But it's like, 
when they want it to be a job, mm. it's something like they're usually trying to avoid culpability. Mm. And it's like, look, I'm just, I'm just an honest, I'm just trying to do an honest day's work here, serving my constituents. Mm. I'm basically a glorified citizens and vice bureau. I just come in and every day, and people see me. And just, oh, what happens in Parliament? Not my fault, Gov. Yeah, it's above my pay grade. Yeah, I'm too busy sorting out passports. I'm just here trying to eke out a living mm-hmm. so I can get home all right. And it's yeah. like, yeah, okay, fine, that's one view of it but then it's like when you try to fucking deselect them which like democratically mm-hmm. it's like this is this is disgraceful i have been appointed mm. by the people or if you just say you're a dickhead online <laughs> yeah oh well i mean yeah whereas these are the people like um it's like jess phillips always one of the first ones to like oh my god these people are being so horrible to me yet she's also one of the first ones to start complaining about service workers online yeah that was a weird that was yeah it was a weird she hasn't got a very... It makes me think that her funding, wherever it came from, got gets withdrawn at various points because at, at various points she'll go completely silent and just do the standard MP tweet and things. Like, met someone at a sheet plastic factory today. Yeah. Fine, whatever. But then other times it'd be like, my pizza hut was four hours late. <laughs> and it's like, did they withdraw my the... My children ass- are crying. <laughs> did they withdraw the assistant, Jess? <laughs> but like, yeah, MP should be the most technically the most volatile job in the country yes. because it's one of the few things you can lose on basically a whim yeah like for no good reason you yeah. can just lose it yeah dennis skinner for instance yeah brexit kind of was a bit of a whimsical <laughs> thing that for for yeah. these long-standing mps to lose their jobs over but like you can't even like deselect them you can't they always say oh you, there was a lot of that you could it's like oh it's the only job that the people decide whether you're good enough and it's like what the fuck are you talking about it was in power from 1983 <laughs> the people clearly do not have like any notion yeah. of how to remove this guy yeah uh, i looked into it south end west he's like um he's the third mp since 1935 and the previous two occupants were father and son <laughs> <laughs> you can't vote them out you cannot vote them out God. Yeah, because you can't you can't get rid of them. You can't vote them out. You can't deselect them. You can't say mean things to them online. Then if they like, okay, content warning. Going to talk about suicide a bit now. Um, but if you get if even they go through the official route of one of like an MP is found guilty of being massively corrupt. This was Owen Patterson. Owen Patterson yeah. working just working for a lobby group, taking money to do bad things. Taking calls while they're an MP yeah. to shill for their company. Yeah. And then his response to being found guilty of this is, you bastard investigators, you killed my wife. She killed you, herself because of the stress that you put on me. The, the stress at my corruption contributed yeah. to my wife's suicide. Which, yeah. frankly, it, like... No, how you say did, the stress of my corruption. The, like, the stress of my witch trial. Yeah. And it, it, which is a in, fucking incredible thing hmm. to say. Like... So fucking gross. Yeah, that's disgusting. Like, um, he's got kids. If that was like my dad doing that, I would be would be like, what the fuck? What are you doing? But that just shows like how quickly they get to the like you know the um the Stella Crazy thing. Do not contact me again. Yeah, going um, into somebody's mentions to yeah, say do not contact me again. Just getting so angry at the notion of any kind of cul- of being held culpable for anything. And like back to um David Ames, it is not at all surprising that. Um, it's disgusting, and it should be surprising, that they take a uh, stabbing of an MP and turn it into, 
I am called mean things online by people with yeah. anonymous accounts. We must get rid of online anonymity because that will save lives. So this was, yeah, this was the and aspect. Brendan Cox immediately comes out and he was like, that was when he started doing his um, fanked MP bollocks. Um, and it's like, oh yeah, Brendan Cox, I wonder what possible reason that piece of shit fucking sexual assault monster would have for like, I don't want people being anonymous and being mean to me online. I think what happened to like the British political mind hmm. somewhere around 1990 mm-hmm. was that what they did was so they took idealism that's mm-hmm. the idea that that's the notion that you start with ideas that then form material reality you have mm-hmm. a good idea you put that into practice it becomes reality and they ran with it and purified it this is the opposite to materialism which is the marxist thing of yeah. like the way you are fashions the ideas that are actually prominent in your society or whatever but they started with the idealism they ran with it and purified it until they were left with the purest form of the idea, which was that, which is tweets, <laughs> and the purest form of material reality, murder, death, <laughs> and therefore tweets cause murder. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But despite the fact that, according to most reports, the man who murdered David Amos did not have a social media presence, <laughs> did not tweet at him. Are you telling me he wasn't repeatedly being mean to him on Twitter? I mean, it would be funny, like, okay, they were talking about shutting down constituency surgeries. I don't really give a shit about that. Constituency surgeries are about 100 years old. They're not um, mm. compulsory, no well, matter what they say. Yeah, they, are, they are completely voluntary, yeah. and they were set up by some Labour and Liberal MPs, like, in the early 1900s. What's well, the thing I was saying to you, that the notion of having to go to your constituency MP to solve the labyrinthine problems that the local council has caused you, that's a symptom, that's like, Shows how much of a failure the system is. Not like this amazing bit where they're what what because they they make it really vague what they do. It's like we're helping people out. That's also when people can have their say about us. They can put there is. I mean, I, I repeat it again and again. It, like I've grown sick of the sound of me saying that it's just a glorified. It's a, not a glorified. It's an un, what's the opposite of glorified. Um, underwhelming citizens' <laughs> advice bureau because yeah. it doesn't do the things that the citizens' advice bureau used to do, which no. point you towards the proper institution to it's, go and ask the same question. It's petitioning the local lord. Yeah, and and you know at a certain point maybe it's useful. Maybe, maybe like people like MPs who do it are probably really really good at it. Mm. I'm sure it is the most inefficient way of both spending an MP's time mm-hmm. and of solving a problem that you might need need that service for. Mm. Right. Um, so they were immediately talking about the closing that down. Which it's also one of the few kind of face-to-face moments you might get with an MP. Hmm. And then they were going on about social media. And it's like, well, look, you've got blue ticks. Hmm. Okay, you've got special kind of complaining powers hmm. about online. You can turn off replies. You can ask them to be banned. You if can they hide replies. Um, but no, it's not enough. We have to be able to threaten people's livelihoods. Because hmm. that's the only reason. That's the only thing it's there for. Hmm. It's to specifically target somebody who says something that you don't like. It's back to that Laura Koonsberg figure of this is him. Yeah, this is him. And like, there was a, there was a right after, there was an interview with um, Jess Phillips, actually, mm-hmm. um, done by Matt Chorley. And it was recorded shortly after the news of David Amos's death was announced. And um, she was like, oh, there's way of offering scrutiny without hate. And it's like, okay, what is it? Like, seriously, what is it? Because whenever you get to a certain point with NMP, they just say, well, the solution is you join a party, you get yourself elected as a prospective parliamentary candidate, and then you get elected. It's like, is that really the absolute limit? That's literally the limit of how far they are willing to go. Hmm. 
And frankly, like given deselection and the choice that parties make about each MP and each constituency, even that's not a fucking guarantee. Mm. So you're saying that's it. Mm. That's the only way anyone can get rid of you. There's absolutely like nothing else you can do. The thing that was um the the last thing I wanted to say about it that made me feel really disgusted is you've seen the way MPs pal about with each other. Um, like, you know, you should that when they got all angry about the never kiss a Tory thing mm. and you know, we're like they are very much especially now, it's back to back to business as usual, all of them are in a club. Yeah. With journalists, which, you know, go into the karaoke things and all that kind of stuff, defending each other. Get, like treating each other like they're all saints and that we're like this ravenous mass of people that are just ruining their lives. Yeah. Um, and you've seen how much they're willing to go to bat for each other. Mm. Yet they are all willing in an instant, as soon as one of them dies, to exploit that death of someone that is of their same class and who they would yeah. have normally protected um, to get make their lives just a little bit easier. Yeah. And this is a person that if like... If a month ago David Ames came out with something incredibly homophobic, like he has done, <laughs> um, they would have protected, they would have defended him. Yeah. And they would have defended his right to say it. And they would have said that, you look, we're like, it's sanctum, um, sanctimonious. This is a sacred role, blah, blah, blah. But then as soon as he dies, then he's just a useful thing to get what they want. Yeah. It's just gross. It's just like. There's a whole there's a whole set of questions raised up by their attitude, and I think it's part of a bigger question about exactly the way that the role of MP is changing. Um, mm. It's a much bigger thing. Probably do an episode on it at some point in the future. But mm. like, there is something slightly there's less restraint about positioning themselves as exceptional persons and not even citing themselves within a particular democrat. They talk about a democratic system, but they don't talk about. And they talk about it in certain glowing terms, but they don't talk about it in terms of their relation to the system and, and like improvements. Like everything, even the most rad, like the most radical idea coming out of the Labour right was like the citizens' assemblies things, mm. and that specifically is keeping them there and taking some culpability and some responsibility and citing it outside of Parliament. Mm-hmm. And for all the kind of sanctified nonsense they're talking about Parliament, they're fucking changing the. Boundary. They're making boundary changes. Mm-hmm. They're gerrymandering constituencies. Mm-hmm. Is that an insult to the memory of the democratic dead? <laughs> Is adopting? A, are we going to get a discussion about proportional representation? Because would that be interrupting the sacred bond and therefore destroying the like MPs' divine, like semi-divine nature? Mm. Like, what is that? Mm. And you know, it makes it impossible. To provide a proper accounting for the death of political figures in a way that, you know, like Boris Johnson said he was, you know, uh, Kasim Soleimani was, you know, had, had it coming to him. Mm. You know, like John Pat Cunningham mm-hmm. murdered by politics, mm. by the political situation and soldiers with guns. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that wasn't a disruption of the democratic system. Mm. It's only when they specifically are targeted and they are focused on that the democratic system is disrupted. And that's, you know, can't say they don't repeatedly open themselves up to the charge of being applied to the same principle that they apply elsewhere. Hmm. Okay, so for the main kind of topic this week, um, I'm now back at work 
in the office you are. full time. So am I. I, you are. I've seen your stream. <laughs> it's hard at work in my office. I hate it. I really liked working from home. Your, your experience of lockdown may vary, and obviously I appreciate it's been fucking hell for some people. But just talking about me, I really, really enjoyed working from home. Um, I'm really sour about it. You didn't it. like lockdown, but you liked working from home. Yeah. Lockdown. I don't go out. Like I, 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 I'm in. I'm an in. I'm an indoor. I've always been an indoor person. I don't know, like, if it's the way I was raised or something. But I don't. I don't feel the same pressure when I'm under like confinement. Mm-hmm. I would go for five days inside my house if I didn't have to go out for food. Oh, I like I, I can, I can do it. I don't know why. I don't know why. Like it's, it's all fucked up. I, I think we said it early on in Corona. I was like, I feel really bad because I feel all right. Yeah. And it's like, what does that say about me? But yeah. So I'm now going into the office five days a week, and uh, I'm really sour about it. So I'm now <laughs> going to spend an hour bitching <laughs> about why it's terrible and how fucking salty I am that my sweet deal is over. <laughs> um, I mean, you know, I, I kind of knew it was coming because my work I have to be in because of like witness statements and meetings with my handler, and it means commuting all the way to Lambeth, and <laughs> it's you know. I really, really need to stop making that joke. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, so what I actually wanted to talk about in this vein was... You like, can't follow Insulate Britain people around from home. <laughs> they just wouldn't pay for the drones. <laughs> Always skimping. <laughs> MI5 quid, we call it. <laughs> no, I'm really going to stop doing that. because I, The more you joke about it, the less an agent I am. But then at some point, it's going to be, he was so double agent, he crossed over into being triple agent and being an actual, kind of wishful thinking, magical thinking by way into being an actual MI5 agent. You didn't go to public school, you're not getting into MI5. <laughs> um, so yeah, what I actually wanted to talk about in this vein was work after COVID. Yeah. And it was this idea that COVID would change work forever. Mm-hmm. Um, the furlough scheme ended at the end of September, and now we're in the time when supposedly coronavirus special measures are over everything is back to normal there's no real official coronavirus regulations around um there's some masks in places but they're recommendations and you know it's largely stopped yeah um a lot of people work like obviously the huge difference about uh, work during coronavirus was flexible working or, or working from home um, in May 2021, there was a survey that suggested around 37% of working adults in the UK did some working from home in 2020. Um, and some surveys suggested that as many as 50% of adults were working from home during at some point during 2021. And the survey also went on to ask them whether they wanted to continue some kind of hybrid working hmm. regimen. And 85% said they did, hmm. although they couldn't agree on how many days that would involve. Um, and there was a long period of time during the various lockdowns when I heard about like the utopian possibilities that would be freed by mm-hmm. this once in a generation happening and that the pandemic conditions were just going to transform the way people worked. Um, and this time it was like a lot more, it was a lot more prominent and it wasn't just like some section sponsored section in the Guardian business mm-hmm. bit. It was like anecdotally, I heard so many people talking about how like from now on everyone would become office freelancers, businesses mm-hmm. wouldn't need offices anymore, the city centres were going to hollow out, you know, what are we going to do about all the city centre shops? Let's turn them into Amazon depots. There were a lot of mm-hmm. those kind of like discussions held by, you know, just delivered normally just mm-hmm. by people. Um, 
there was also talk of how like a move away from the office would end uh, workplace racisms and gender and racial bias in hiring, um, and how I didn't it would. See that. Yeah, there were there were definite. It's like uh, it would end kind of. Uh, like uh, female and people of colour, like imbalances in microaggressions in, in the workplace and CV discrimination and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would also, like, you know, do things like cut sexual harassment claims at work, and which, you know, if you're not working with other people, yeah. is sort of, yeah, fait accompli. Um, and it also seems to be one of the few, literally the few things that Starmer actually seemed to oppose the government on. Mm. Um, he... The Labour Party did promise people a right to flexible working and Starmer urged employers and the government to think again about the benefits of allowing people to work from home. And like I felt at the time like all of this talk was super, super optimistic. Mm. Like it was it was wild. It was like, oh no, no one's gonna need offices anymore. There's not gonna be such a thing as offices. Mm. And lots of kind of utopian thinking about what you would do with all that free real estate <laughs> in yeah. the middle of towns. And you know what? I was, you know, right. <laughs> I was right to be sceptical. Um, and are you telling me they didn't that that the plan isn't to turn those massive collections of office blocks that are on the outskirts of towns that are just held together with roundabouts and nightmares that they aren't turning them all into like playgrounds? No, apparently not. It wouldn't be like the uh, the bobbly slide from um, Simpsons when they melt down all the guns. <laughs> it's just melting melting down a cafetiere. <laughs> um. To be honest, in hindsight, you can actually tell that this was never going to happen. Mm. Like, objectively, you can tell because all the advocates were the same people who advocated it during peacetime, for want of a better word. They, yeah. were the, they were the same people. The same shards of capital, tech companies, kind of boosterish journalist outlets, mm. management consultants, people like that. It didn't gain any new voices like in the discourse. And it was purely rooted in arguments about productivity and kind of worker happiness. And you know that's not going to fly. <laughs> um, it didn't have any, it didn't have a good, it often didn't come with any good moral argument. Like they would make kind of gestures towards happiness mm. and work-life balance and stuff like that. But it didn't have that crushing moral weight that the eventual kind of reaction to homeworking that does, did and does. Yeah. Sorry. Um, no, I was going to say, um... Every time I heard people talk about uh, work-life balance and happiness of workers, it was always in the same breath as productivity. Yeah. That, you know, we got to keep workers happy because then they'll work longer. Because, like, no, I, de- I definitely get that, but it, it, it was... It, it doesn't bring anything new. They've, those mm. same people have been literally filling the columns of the FT and The Guardian for decades mm. about how we're just on the cusp of work 4.0, 3.0, whatever it is. And it doesn't work because it has no material weight. Mm. It is literal idealism. It is mm. it is a good idea, therefore we should do it, not how does it materially impact the fortunes and agenda of the ruling class, mm. the people who actually make those decisions. Um, and we're sort of now in the kind of hazy period after the end of COVID measures, and the tone of the, let's say, the reaction to homeworking has gotten... Indignant. <laughs> did you see what Charlie Mullins said? I did, yeah. That if you're working from home and you don't have to, that it's the same as claiming benefits. Yep. Um, oh. He said, people that are working from home can go to work when they can go to work is equivalent to drawing benefits when they should be going to work. The people who don't need to work from home should go back into the workplace and get the economy going. 
I love Charlie Mullins because he's such a piece of shit. Yeah. And he does all of this while looking like a really shitty Rod Stewart tribute act. Oh, he looks monstrous. He's he really so does. like don't like to criticize people based on their on how they look because not all the yeah. time it's their fault. But you know, he chose to have a mullet. He chose to have that face as well, given the fucking surgery scars. <laughs> that mullet though. Yeah. It's the mullet. <laughs> and you know, he's not a party animal. It's interesting how they're also not talking... They're talking in very fuzzy economic terms about Mm. getting the economy going Mm. again. Not that it was going fucking amazing all the time before. Mm -hmm. But they're also making this kind of... I don't know if you can get it. This tone. Mm. And it's only ever a tone you hear when strikes are being proposed. It is the absolute indignation of a master of the world being told they can't do something. Yeah. For no reason other than another person doesn't want them to do it. Yeah. Not good reasons, not like any any other reason, but just a power thing. Yeah. It is. They are really exceptionally angry. Yeah. At it, um, it's going to you know cause the death of civilization. Uh, there was a a woman on um, Good Morning Britain, um, a chairwoman of Women Into Business, Tina Knight, who said that companies had been blackmailed by work from home demands, yeah, strikes, that people were setting a bad example to their children. And that working from home was the same as multi-generational unemployment. <laughs> she said, the buzz of working, the brainstorming... The buzz. The buzz of working, the brainstorming, the general things that give extra output, and the companies are now finding that missing... and the, That missing, and a lot of the reason companies are bowing to the pressure is the shortage of staff in certain sectors. They're being blackmailed into it. <laughs> One of the ones that really made me laugh is... Um, um, Nick Ferrari gets really angry about people working from home. And mm. I've heard a lot of journalists saying the same thing about, like, you know, it's the energy of the office. It's learning from older people who are there when you're, like, a young person in the mm. office. And I was just thinking, like, maybe they've got a point. Maybe there's something that all those young women had to learn from Nick Cohen. And so they <laughs> should, everyone should be back in the office because people like Nick Cohen have got so much to teach younger women. That's a fine thing to say. That is, yeah. yeah. Um... Yeah, like the, the the it's it's just I've never. They have things that they've complained about before, but they have never complained. It like the CEO of Goldman Sachs said that home working was an aberration that he was going to correct as soon as possible. <laughs> Sounding like a preach, like um, like one of those, like a a preacher in forty k with like the megaphone baby flying baby corpse thing. Oh yeah. <laughs> you work from home scum are an aberration. Cyber cherubim? What were they called? The cherubim. They're yeah, they were cherubim. Cyber, yeah, they're cherubim. Like, they're just they're babies that they turn into little helpful tools. They're like little computers that fly around yeah. and carry things for them. I think it was a piece of art that got out of hand. Let's say that. I'd say that literally <laughs> all Warhammer lore is a piece of artwork that got out of hand. Yes. <laughs> But the, the tone of it sounds, it, it does sound kind of similar to some of the moral hectoring you got in coronavirus cause, mm. during the lockdown. Because that was, that was a time when, as, you, as we mentioned before, you saw what the ruling class clearly felt was essential and what was kind of superfluous to survival. Yeah. Sitting with your family in a park, etc., etc. Yeah. Um, and it's spreading this idea that unorthodox working practices that don't benefit them, mm-hmm. even if they do benefit them, were, are indulgences and treats mm-hmm. that have to be swiftly withdrawn. And that even trying to negotiate for these things was the act of a rebellious child who mm-hmm. has to be sanctioned and sanctioned immediately. They are calling for, you know, we've already seen like um, 
various places. I think even Google, which is not part of the shard of capitalists that you would think necessarily would be pushing away mm. from home working, but they said they were going to cut wages if you worked from home because you weren't spending money on commuting. You weren't doing that. Something that people generally don't like, even if they do like going into the mm. office, which I, I actually, in truth, don't mind a bit. Mm. Um, but the commuting part of it is terrible. Nobody likes it. The latest... That, that idea that, um, that money on commuting is a thing that has ever factored into the wages, yeah. that you're paid because they expect you to have to you know, mm-hmm. pay for your travel, that that is a thing. And the, if that's true, then surely your workday starts when you first step out of the flat. Yes. But yes. no. No, it doesn't. No, right. it must always be this situation that benefits us. Mm. In any equation, mm. any even if you try and negotiate on that, mm. that is the worst thing imaginable. Um, I mean, you've had various media outlets kind of start on this. Daily Mail obviously has been at the at the forefront. They've mainly picked on civil servants because mm-hmm. um, they're always an easy target well, trying to get civil servants back into the office and saying saying that um, they made Afghanistan fall. Yeah, that uh, uh, people were left stranded in Afghanistan because. Um, people, civil servants were working from home. Mm. <laughs> Could you imagine if all those soldiers were working from home? Yeah. It'd be a lot fucking better. Yeah. Afghanistan would be a lot fucking better. It would be. Um, and it's hard, like, they're an easy target, but it's hard not to read into civil servants applying to the rest of the economy. You mm. know, like a military language around duty of all things. In an mm. advanced capitalist economy, dissolving all bonds of chivalry, etc., etc., then talking about, like, duty mm-hmm. is particularly filthy. And you can see how that's meant to be then applied back across the workforce. But they've also started in on, like, GPs now mm-hmm. as well. Um, during COVID, GPs were urged to move to result consultations. And Sajid Javid... Um, using a combination of like access to a particular kind of fund and um, like cultural war language, hmm. has started saying, no, GPs have to see patients like face-to-face. And like they were already remoting, like doing remote appointments, not just like pre-COVID, not yeah. just because of COVID, but because you turned them all into CCGs and massively oversubscribed them yeah. and let the market decide where GP surgeries were needed. Yeah, You know? Um you know, using words like get off your pelotons and back into the office, which mm. is very clearly coded. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, you could have used croissants or quinoa, but it doesn't quite have the same, uh, right. doesn't quite have the same, maybe you've overused that a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, Boris even mentioned it in his, in his actual Tory conference speech. He said, as we come out of COVID, our towns and cities are again going to be buzzing with life. Because we know that a productive workforce that needs that spur that only comes with face-to-face meetings and water-cooler gossip. Look. If young people are to learn on the job in the way that they always have and must, <laughs> we will and must see people back in the office again. I'm going to say now, I have never learned anything from anyone older than me. And I refuse <laughs> to. But also, like, the things that are integral to British society. Now look, if in Britain, if I can't, walk through Soho between the hours of five and eight and see some of the most horrendous binge drinking the world has ever seen, then this country will fall. David Ames didn't die for nothing. (laughs) It's... It's interesting, because, like, there are... Yeah, as you've mentioned, like, there are very... Do you want another Yates to fail? (laughs) They were shutting Weatherspoons. 
Imagine how, how devastated this country has to be for a Weatherspoons to fail. It's disgusting. There are like there are various there are even various studies that like have gone on and like that productivity goes up when people are home working. Um, and if people don't go into the office, okay. those baguette shops, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna let you those baguette shops at train stations will go bust. The least de France, yes, more like delete de France. Exactly. Is that what you wanted? Yeah. Okay, fine. <laughs> Sorry. It is. <laughs> um, where am I going with this? <laughs> Tyrak already went bust. What more do you want? Are you just naming ra- like railway shops station shops now? Yes. The whole railway station economy, which apparently is the driving force of this country. <laughs> what really pisses me off about that is, uh, yeah, okay, like, they are obviously tied up intimately with commercial landlords mm-hmm. and that interest. Mm-hmm. But they are also tied up with the service economy and like maybe not in in a kind of direct donor mm-hmm. financial interest kind of way but the service industry and the way it works there are various like studies that go on that say the productivity goes up when you're working from home part of the time yeah. and the well-being of these workers was literally a like the transition from an industrial to a service economy was literally a thatcher result mm. for want of a better term like they are intimately tied up with the kind of things that go on in offices. They mm. are proud of the, maybe not the admin stuff, but they are proud of the results of their economy. Like it contributes so much to their good economy and mm. they get to boast about it. Mm. Like moaning about it is kind of like, it's sort of like complaining about um, when they have a go at people with flat screen tellies, mm. like poor people with flat screen tellies. It's like, well, the economy is like, dependent on consumer credit the abundance of material goods was crucial in you saying capitalism was the best system and it was like a huge weapon in defeating post-war social democracy Mm. and like you are super mad that people are spending beyond their means it's like this is the system you set up and you advocated for you know like i know why they do it and i know that it has a reason beyond the reasoning that i've just laid out but like you want office workers, like office workers, if they're highly paid enough, can probably be natural Tories. Mm. That's a huge generalisation. Yeah. But like, it's not like you're reinventing the industrial working class, but you're kind of going on at them like they are in mm. that same like strike, strike breaker language. Mm. And like, yeah, they haven't like, ultimately, this isn't going to be like decided by which which has the better idea or which is in the right, but it is going to be decided like decided by the power of the blocks proposing or opposing it. And mm. I guess the government are doing a kind of like divide and rule on working conditions generally, right? Because they've stopped short, just short of doing a what did you do in the pandemic daddy mm. kind of deal by contrasting key workers and NHS and care workers with um, home workers, Mm. which is probably because they're just about to treat key workers like shit Mm. and not grant any of their pay increases. But um, it is this kind of real thing of like, at the core of the working environment must be the straining and the suffering. Mm. There must be an element of masochism and putting yourself and your spirit through terrible conditions in order to produce a result and you can't beat that by referencing any productivity increases or any good theories about why it's happening but like 
I had a few ideas about why this is the case. What gives? Mm-hmm. Why is this happening? Now, the obvious short-term answer is, as we've mentioned, urban commerce and the commercial opportunities tied up with regeneration of city centres has largely been driven by the routines of commuting and office life and that style of employment. Um, you're 10 million costers on a high street, you're prets. And let's face it, like the late opening Tesco Express mm. is conditioned by the fact that people work those long hours, commute, and then get back to the only shop that's open. Yeah. Um, commercial landlords have billions trillions even tied up in real estate that's dependent on the flow of commuters so they have a definite class interest in resuming business as usual the way it was before and this obviously definitely true but i think there's something else going on here as well i think there is a general kind of an interesting acceleration of what was happening already which is the rise of something called immaterial labor it's a structural renegotiation and a realignment of the what's becoming the largest part of the UK economy. And it's a necessary conflict between immaterial labour and like UK capitalism generally, UK capital. By way of an explainer, immaterial labour is this theory about the nature of work in a post-industrial economy like the UK. Um, Phil Burton Cartledge, who does the A Very Public Sociologist blog, talks about this a lot. Mm. Um, writes a lot about this, is very good on it. Um, Long story short, immaterial labour is work that doesn't necessarily produce a good, but that is either partly or entirely composed of cognitive or affective work. Mm -hmm. That's emotional work. Um, Or otherwise uses kind of those skills in order to increase the value of a a product. Um, There's usually like two rough poles to it. It's either kind of intellectual labour, which Mm. is producing texts, ideas, computer programmes, spreadsheets, um, admin, sort of the same as like the knowledge economy that Mm. the third way new labour people used to go on about. And the other pole is affective labour. So it'd be like doctors, flight attendants, um, care workers, call centres, like retail and service sectors even, Mm. you know. It's you're using your brain to produce or maintain, or you use your smileys to make people buy. Um, historically, the most immaterial labour that has ever happened in one place is a games workshop, ironically. Um, <laughs> the way those people sell you and notice you when you come into a shop and sell directly to you and fucking bug you and don't leave you alone... Mm-hmm. Um, ...is by far the most effective labour. I would have immaterial labor. never been I have, in one fucking liar filth you can feel your lies coming through this smell the polystyrene cement on my fingers did this pod listeners did this podcast start smelling (laughs) all of a sudden smelling my lies smelling your bullshit (laughs) um yeah it's games workshop followed by lush and then body shop Mm. the people who most bother you but that is an example of effective labor Mm -hmm. in something like retail um Feminist thinkers have also used like effective work to describe um, care work and things like unpaid domestic labour. Yeah. Um, if it's work is work, mm-hmm. um, domestic work is work, and so that requires a certain set of cognitive and and yeah emotional skills that is not easily able to to be quantified mm. just by an output a product. Um, two thinkers, um, Hart and Negri. Um, sort of extended the theory of immaterial labour into this revolutionary theory. So it was this idea that after the end of kind of industrial, after as industrial capitalism declined and um, in the West, um, 
they were mainly thinking of like IT and creative workers were involved in creating this kind of body of labour whenever they did immaterial labour, whenever they did cognitive labour, whenever they produced something that was immaterial, it was a body of knowledge or a text or a body of work like that, that it kind of went into a commons and that capitalists would find it very difficult to um, commodify it. Mm -hmm. They would find it very difficult to place a value on it and therefore you could do away with capitalists because they would never be able to own the product that was built by this. It was very like early 80s and 90s digital capitalism mm -hmm. Everything will be free. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, 2021, it's plainly horseshit. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, for them, it was like digital workers were going to be the highly paid workers of the future. They were going to be the vanguard class mm -hmm. and all, all of that kind of stuff. And, you know, now you can see capital actually has very good methods of <laughs> commodifying and uh, factorizing, for want of a better word, that kind of, that kind of content. It's yeah. li literally content. Yeah. Um, and you know, monetizing essentially free content, even getting free labor mm -hmm. by using their platform is a book by Nick Sonacek. Sorry if I mispronounced that name. Um, called Platform Capitalism, which talks about how you know you've got your Ubers and the Facebooks and Googles, which are essentially getting all of this free labor to then market and harvest the data, and they get money for nothing. Mm -hmm. So yeah, you can see how this digital commons idea was yeah, just very old internet. Yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah, obviously, like a lot of people, as far as I can work out, it's quite an unfashionable theory now because of how fucking horseshit it is. Because yeah. essentially positing a theory that this work is going to dominate and because bosses can't measure it, it's going to be fine, then communism <laughs> um, might not have come out in the wash. Yeah. But uh, I think it the, the concept of that kind of work is important enough because it's an identifiable component of yeah. a lot of people's jobs. There's barely any job that you use now that you don't have to... You're not encouraged to use and flex these immaterial skills, these mm. social skills, uh, to try and improve your workflow or to better sell the, the product that you're trying to sell. You know, advertising, sales, general admin is part of a lot of, lot of jobs now. Mm. Um the important thing is that, in a larger sense, is that immaterial labour doesn't produce a commodity um, or work on a commodity that gives it value, but quite often works to sustain a social order. Care work works because it sustains the kind of social relations that would otherwise, in a better society, be undertaken you know, voluntarily. Hmm. Um, it sustains kind of the rough structure of, of capitalist civilization. So like child care, like society has to yeah. reproduce itself through children. So child care, care home workers to look after elderly people. It's, it's the kind of the bare minimum of social reproduction that's required to keep a society stable and keep people from, yeah, you mistreated my nan, I'm going to knock over your government. Yeah. Um, only just though, <laughs> only just. You've seen some of the care homes? Only just. Yeah. This kind of function of, of stabilising a social order is especially important in an economic system like the UK and the US because there aren't really any like new profitable frontiers to exploit. There's no new commodities to continue, kind of introduce a new product and create this new super product that you can see huge profits from. You aren't going to introduce coffee to Europe again. There yeah. is no new oil. Yeah. Despite how much you try it, like recyclable energy is a new thing, is a different kind of different kind of thing, a different kind of profit. And you know, no matter how hard you try, kombucha isn't coffee. <laughs> it's just not. Yeah. Um, primitive accumulation, not to say primitive accumulation and like raw material extraction aren't going on elsewhere in the world, mm. 
but they're not in a close geographic proximity to the markets of the West, you know. And any work that goes on in those industries in the West tends to be immaterial. It's, mm. it's admin and it's, it's selling, yeah. you know. Um, so what happens is capitalists searching for profit have to turn inwards and start to kind of um, add value to existing services. So you think about like getting, okay, it might complicate it a bit, but you think about getting a bank loan. Mm. Having a call centre number you can call on top of that, which is the immaterial labour, adds value hmm. in an abstract sense, and we'll cut to that in a minute because it is very abstract, but it adds value to the thing that you're get the service that you're getting. Yeah. Right? You buy like you get customer service on your iPod or yeah. whatever, your iPad. Um and yeah, the important part of that, obviously, it's it's abstract. Um by its very nature, the value it adds to those products or services is very difficult to quantify. Now, the capitalist, who is in a constant competition for efficiency with its competitors, is compelled to try and measure this somehow. Hmm. The call centre worker, is they are, they need that value needs to be measured in order to work out how much value is being added in order to calculate the profit, right? So how do you measure the value of, of smile on a child's face? <laughs> or instituting a brand new worksheet that's then wiped out because you have to spend two fucking hours sorting out a reply-all email or something <laughs> like that. Um, what it means is, is that when capitalists try to measure this, it means surveillance. Hmm. It means in-person surveillance on company property, on company property, on timesheets, recording hours, project timescales. They get you to ask, hmm. you know, how long your project's going to take. All of these things, and it doesn't stop in the workplace because immaterial labour is dependent on skills contained entirely within that person. That knowledge that you have that produces that body of work, that those effective skills you have that your bedside manner or whatever, they cannot necessarily easily be transferred to someone else, although God knows they will try, especially in the care sector. They can't easily be measured and they can't easily be... Uh, uh, because, they're de- yeah, because they're dependent on skills that like are contained entirely within a person, that measurement and that encouragement, that development of that skills, the increasing of the value that you have, has to extend into your home life. Hmm. So you're encouraged to develop your brand. You know your extracurricular activities are all encouraged to be used to develop these immaterial skills that then feed back into the into the office. There is no separation between hmm. work and home anymore. Um, there was that tweet. What was it about? Um, in a job interview, someone got asked. Um, if the interviewee used lockdown to pursue passion projects or personal development. And it's like, yeah, it's that was in order for them to turn your personal non-work life into value that you then took back into the office. You know, it sucks. Um, in a more immediate sense, the actual surveillance means that employers are constantly encouraged to show like this overt drive and ambition. They call it like FaceTime. Mm. All of those little office skills that prove that you're a person who you know wants to climb the ladder mm. and who has the right attitude and the right values. All of that talk is in order to, yeah, it's to more align you to be the kind of person they want, but it's also to kind of... Be able to have you open so that they can read you, so that they can work out how much of your time you are not goofing off and how mm. much of your time you are putting in to develop your value to that business, you know? Mm. Um, even the least ambitious person is, you know, they always have to, like, justify themselves in some way, and it's usually quite abstract. It's a substitute for any accurate evaluation of their their actual value. Um 
and the obviously the, the the surveillance and evaluation techniques that they use are an attempt to kind of appropriate the cognitive effort that people have to put into these kind of jobs and coming back to what all the prime minister and the capitalists were saying one of the reasons why they keep mentioning buzz water cooler gossip and team cohesion why they mention it so often is that the skills most often used in immaterial labor can't be transferred it's not a process it's a body of knowledge contained within somebody and usually a group of people and the capital has to try and appropriate that somehow like tina knight the gmb woman Mm. she explicitly said it the brainstorming and the general things that give extra output Mm. so that's not you doing your job that you were contracted to that's you working out that's you self-managing your skills in order to improve their process Mm. you know the unspoken requirement is that rather than just administering the process it must be constantly voluntarily improved and supposedly for a more easier, more efficient life for the worker, but ultimately claimed for the benefit of the capitalist. And it's why you had all those like ridiculous offices in the 90s and the 2000s, like foosball tables and beanbag mm. chairs and free lunches and all that kind of stuff. It was because, A, they expected you to stay longer, and B, the idea was that an easygoing collaborative workplace would make some people have the one easy trick idea that would save the company millions. Mm. The company, as represented by its managers has to be present in that location when that idea happens in order to capture it Hmm. and steal your brains. So it's far less, not only is it less likely to happen over Zoom, I agree that those kind of things are less likely to happen when you're working from home, but also the employee who has that idea maybe thinks about a better way of applying it than for your company's Hmm. benefit, you know? And I mean, even among even among workers, because it's never just a single worker being evaluated. It's always a, a, a group of workers, a collective. These are this is the way that, that offices work most of the for the most part. Um, there's also a problem with determining kind of individual levels of competence, like comparatively within a team. Like if you imagine, as I imagine most of our listeners have, if you've worked in a service job or any office job, you can recognise like the dreaded personal development review or performance rating standard or whatever they call it at your place. The evaluation of who gets to earn what wage is supposedly based on competence that's based on evaluation. But have you ever put any stock in a personal development review? Has it ever accurately depicted your performance? You know, have has, have you ever found any of your own ways of quantifying your performance? Like, it doesn't matter how fast you pour that pint. It doesn't matter how wide you smile. It doesn't matter how good your spreadsheet is. Like, you don't get any more money for that. Or at least, you don't get any more money for that. Hmm. Um, and there's a lot of kind of arbitrary arbitrariness in the immaterial economy just because that, that there is this inability to properly rate the value of the thing that you're doing. Whether you're a cafe worker or you're an admin assistant, you are more likely, your pay is more likely to be determined by state your status, for a start, and the heritage of what kind of job title, that what kind of wage that job title gets paid. Hmm. Which is why all of the stupid stuff about job titles actually has a material basis and a material advantage it sounds stupid somebody calling themselves like head of happiness services yeah you know plumbing administrator coordinator you know all of the funny things that were in funny ben elton comedies Hmm. all of those funny ben elton (laughs) comedies they actually have a material basis like there's a material a reason why those things happen um so, like, demands, if an, an individual ever makes 
pay demands, they're couched in terms of, rather than performance, of like, what's a comparable wage that an occupant of this role received? Mm. And that's how much I should get. Mm. You know, my job title says this. Mm. This is what this gets paid at another company. Therefore, I should be that. That's fucking insanity. That's Mm. like not quantified at all. No. There's no logic to that. That's literally like guild. That's that's custom. Yeah. And tradition. Um, So bringing it back around to like working from home. If immaterial workers are asked to be constantly stealth-starting improvers and your remuneration is based on arbitrary notions of status and industry-wide custom, it makes perfect sense that a privilege like flexible working would become an important component of an immaterial worker's independence and status. Hmm. Status implies a hierarchy, so it also kind of coalesces with the fact that the modern bourgeoisie, which is made up of a significant number of immaterial workers and Rather than in the past where you would describe the bourgeoisie as like owning things, they would own own things and employ other people and command production processes. They're more often now reconstituted as salaried middle managers. And the hierarchy suggests like the the thing they're most scared of is being proletarianized or re-proletarianized, of falling beneath that that limit and Mm. becoming precarious Mm. in the modern modern terminology. And the sight of the bourgeoisie, of the, of the middle classes, being scolded back into merging with a mass, as you do in commuting and you do with mm. office life. And, and rather than asserting their own kind of independence and liberty that maybe their status has deserved, maybe they feel like it has, it has earned, like, that's really interesting to me. Like, being made to feel like they are, those, those offices and those workers are vulnerable mm is a really interesting kink in like class relations because I'm not saying there's going to be some kind of like millennium people style um, revolt of the middle classes, but I think that when you change the relationship with that, when they are scolded in that way and when they are made to feel guilty, it will probably work. Like it'll mm. probably just go back to the same. But there, at the same time, there is a, a little hint of a demand, mm. even where I work. Mm. Um, there's a little hint of... Yeah, people making demands in a way that they don't. Well, they can't overpay because they wouldn't know what to ask for, even if they, yeah. they wouldn't know what a fair wage is. You know, as long as I think you, do, I think there's a Zizek uh, article that talks about surplus wage, and it's like as long as you're above a certain amount of wage, yeah. you consider yourself rich, even if it's not worth. Because again, there's no yeah. way of comparing that to your performance. But as long as you're above that surplus wage, you consider yourself a member of the, of the of the middle class. Hmm. And if you're below it, you're not. Hmm. No matter about your outgoings, no matter about your your wage negotiations, and like I don't think because obviously coronavirus has impacted uh, immaterial workers a lot, mainly because those of those two poles of care workers and office workers, hmm. and it's not in any way like care workers have had like the most hazardous time imaginable mm-hmm. that you could imagine being present in that job. Hmm. Um, so I don't think it like exactly compares. It's part of the problem with the theory of immaterial labour. But I do think it's worth noting the fact that the disciplinary regimes after COVID and declaring an end to alternative working schemes are so similar to the language and tone of strikes. It's not that like the ruling class necessarily has planned all of this response out in advance. Mm. It's not like they always have a perfect idea of the way things will play out and what their interests are. But I think it is probably true that... like. Class interests, they tend to instinctively, the ruling class will, to a large extent, instinctively move away, like a scalded dog, from things that will hurt their interests. 
and make their justifications on almost a, a, an instinctual level. But they will also then blunder into things that they didn't intend. Instinctually, like basically, they are. I think it's probably not untrue to say that capitalists generally are preparing to compete with a more authoritarian capitalism than their current regime. So they want to maintain the absolute most amount of authority, the most amount of discipline over their workforce. Um, this means cutting off alternatives, being able to squeeze every last drop out of workers in whatever field you're in, like material or immaterial. Mm. They recognise, even subconsciously, that they what they want is the flexibility to say, yeah, for a bit you live in this workplace and you work really hard. Mm. Like crunch, basically. Yeah. It's most obvious in the tech industry, but you can see they want that flexibility. Mm. And, you know, you might say, you know, oh, every, anyone who could afford to work from home was, was privileged and it's only a real, it's, it's, it's not, you know, they're not really real jobs. They're like what David Graeber called bullshit jobs. Mm. Um, and like, yeah, you might be right. And yes, the argument over like flexible working is split right down class lines and plays into one of two camps. You've got your pro-flexibles who would benefit from businesses migrating their work onto platforms. It's not mm. like the remote working is the remote working argument is kind of completely free of sin and a pure idea and the greatest idea ever. Um, the amount of exploitation that could happen to people who worked mostly from home is, you know, staggering. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, the other side then is the more rigid in-person discipli disciplining, um, which is seems to be as much a consequence of, like, workplace culture and personality than it does kind of good practice, but... And it has tended to be like boy done good working class that like come up from the gutter working class capitalists who've been the loudest yeah. um, in this thing. And I think perhaps because they're like those national capitalists whose prestige and their story is dependent on a certain kind of idea of workers suffering and then mm. just reward at the end of it. But I think the notion of like immaterial labour and immaterial work touches just enough like low paid and working class positions in this country that if rights are obtained in one area of work, they might not be the same rights, but the mechanism that you dis that the middle class displays in getting it mm. off capitalists might just be a little bit of a a sign that you could there would be scope for for people gaining them in other areas. Mm. You know our. our concern on this podcast is not the kind of living conditions of the middle class <laughs> i get that but i think it's worth noting when changes in the class structure change and what shards of the middle class and the ruling class are kind of like in in opposition because like <clears throat> because like it gets winning this kind of flexible working thing would be a huge thing because it for a start at the base level it can be established that there is a way of resisting labour compulsion. Hmm. Huge, important point of strikes and labour rights generally is working out that you can say no. Yeah. Which I haven't seen happening, you know, like widespread in, in a long time. And secondly, we've already said that, like, the way that commuting works and the way office life works conditions a significant amount of life in this country structures the realities we live in offices are constructed in a certain way entire industries exist to like introduce mindfulness or employee well-being tips let alone you know the ones that are just on youtube marketing to employees directly mm. um, transport infrastructure and pricing is the way it is because of commuters we've already said that most kind of uh, city center commerce has a significant like office worker component mm. 
and like people are furious at uh, environmental protesters at insulate britain and there is a significant kind of poisoning against environmental like green measures because i have to get to work yeah like that it's it's like it's so important to cram transport routes full of like commuting people in order to create the conditions Mm -hmm. the the immaterial conditions and the buzz Mm -hmm. that will then allow them to solve cramming routes full of commuting people (laughs) you know Mm. And every year we have the same like discourse about education, about schools, mm-hmm. half terms, structure of the school year, holidays, child care. These things are structured and conditions around certain ideas of the workplace and of working life. The second question we ask everybody even is, and what do you do? Mm. That's how important these things, these, these questions are and, and how it's worth keeping an eye on, on the way that people are like reacting to these things. And you know, ultimately, it was it was enough to make multiple people go nuclear and have the prime minister include it in his conference speech. So, mm. uh, you know, that's why it's important. Mm. Okay, that's us for this week. You can follow us at wdtatw underscore podcast. You can follow me at Ben Bergmo. You can follow Hugh at Tanner Smashing, and we will no. see you next week. Struggle Ruffian. And you can follow Hugh at. <laughs> follow and you... me and Fitz at Struggle Ruffian. Follow Hugh and Fitz at Struggle Ruffian, and we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye. about the fighting game when Mr. Hoover said to cut my